So in some ways, my message this morning is a follow-up to Clay's sermon last week, and especially the part where he talked about identifying four core values that we would like to define who we are and, and how we engage other people. So this comes on the heels of redoing Woodmont's core values that we've narrowed down from eight to four, so we can remember them, right? And these are Christ-centered community, inspiring worship, transforming groups, and impactful mission. And one of the reasons that we're thinking through our core values is because it forces us as we grow to be specific in how we feel called to live out the presence of Christ together. So when Clay started talking about his four personal core values last week, how many of you began thinking about your own? Like began thinking about what are my core values? What am I living out of? And I have to confess that I was happy for Clay to talk about his because that meant I could put off thinking about mine. Because it hit me as I was taking notes during his sermon that I probably get somewhere between a C and a B minus on the consistent follow through on the fundamentals of what I want my life to be about. And some days I have to admit it's, it may be even a little worse than that. And truth be known, any list that I come up with, with the things that I want to define my life are purely aspirational. They are the things that I aspire to, and, and by that, I mean they're in front of me. I want to move toward them. I want to grow into those things, but I find that I do so in fitful stops and starts. And oftentimes, it's, it's two steps forward and three steps back. And if you're like me, it's the kind of thing that makes me wonder if I can ever really give witness to the qualities of life that Paul says are good and honorable and true. Because all it takes is one mess up and you're compromised, right? Who can possibly believe or trust our high ideals when we continually feel like we're falling short of achieving them? So it's helpful that so much of Scripture talks about this. High standards of life and ethical conduct, and then what to do when you can't possibly live up to it. And the word that we use to describe how we keep from being paralyzed by our own double standard is one of the most powerful theological words in our religious vocabulary. And that word is, is grace. It's, it's only through grace that we can say that we have high aspirations for ourselves and then acknowledge that we are not there yet. We continue to be a work in progress. Without grace, we would just stop and see the entire project of growing in our discipleship, of becoming like Christ, as hopelessly impossible. But in grace and through grace, when we fail at who we aspire to be, we can pick up and we can try again. Because we see being on the journey of doing the work 
to be more like Jesus as so much more preferable than the alternative. And I began thinking about this in depth earlier in January when I was reading through Mark's gospel and it hit me how stark in contrast and how full of hyperbole were Jesus' teachings to his disciples. He said this, he says, if anyone wishes to come after me, let them deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. And we've heard this statement so many times. It's it's easy for us to soften what was likely the impact on Jesus' original audience because the group that Jesus was speaking to, they had seen Roman crosses, lots of them. And they weren't pleasant things to see or even to think about. It was so Horrible, in fact, that the Roman senator and and philosopher Cicero would write that the very mention of them was unworthy of a Roman citizen and person who was free. The scholar N.T. Wright says this. He says that those who crucified people did so because it was the sharpest and the nastiest way of asserting their absolute power and guaranteeing the victim's absolute degradation. The people who gathered around Jesus had seen crosses. And they may have even known some who had been crucified. And here is Jesus saying, if you want to follow me, you have to take up your cross. And then the Apostle Paul takes this to heart in Galatians, and he says in a verse that we happily memorized as children when I was growing up, he says, I have no life been crucified with Christ, and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. And again, we've lost, I think, the weightiness today of what Jesus and Paul are saying, which is this, to live into everything that God has for us. We we must lay down some part of ourselves, we might even say crucify them, that holds on to the things that prevent us from being the beautiful, loving, forgiving, welcoming, hopeful, gracious, kind, compassionate, spiritual being that God has created us to be. And this isn't, by the way, a deep theological statement. In fact, it's immensely pragmatic. I know this to be true, and and that's what I was feeling last week when Clay was talking about writing down our four core values. I would never, ever live into those things that deeply resonate with me as the best version of myself as long as I'm hanging onto the stuff that keeps me emotionally and spiritually stuck. And so this past Wednesday at our Ash Wednesday service, many of you guys came forward as as Farrell and Andrea and I placed ashes on on people's foreheads. And and, um, I think we each may have been saying different things as we made the sign of the cross with the ashes on on people's foreheads. And and I know, I think, I know I overheard Andrea and Farrell both saying incredibly life-giving things. And so if you were in their lines, you were the lucky ones, by the way. Because what I said came straight from the Anglican Book of Prayer. I said this, from dust we come and to dust 
we shall return. Which is pretty depressing if you think about it. So on behalf of all the quasi-would-be Anglicans in the world, I apologize. But I think where the Anglican book of prayer is going with that is this. For those of us who see Lent as a time to reorient ourselves toward the things that have spiritual significance and power, we understand that so often what gets in the way of our making progress on that journey is me. Using the language of dying to self recognizes there is a part of myself that works against myself. And I want to say that again because that's likely the most profound thing you're going to hear me say all year long. Death to self recognizes there is a part of myself that works against myself. And whatever that part of myself is, I want to be aware of it, I want to acknowledge it, and then I want to make some effort to lay it down, to die to it, so I can live into the greater thing that God has for me. And so Paul talks about this in Romans 7. He talks about the tension in his inner person where he says, for the desire to do good lies close at hand, but not the ability. For I do not the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I do. Isn't it good to know we are in good company? And often in Lent, you're going to hear people talk about giving something up, and they do this as a, a spiritual discipline. So Neely and I decided that this Lent, we were going to give up um, sweets together. And then at Friday night, we were all home together, and she caught me trying to sneak the Girl Scout Thin Mint cookies. <laughs> and, and really, the look on her face said to me, said, really, Dad, that's all the discipline you have two days after Ash Wednesday? And so I gave the cookies. I surrendered them to Susan. We give up something in Lent really as, as representative of the more spiritual surrender that we'd like to make so that we can pick up something of spiritual significance. And some people don't give up something, but they take on something as a spiritual discipline, like serving at Room at the Inn, or, or spending time in the mornings, reading devotions, or time in prayer. And so this morning, I want to suggest to us that we can do both. We can lay down something so that we can pick something up. And so I'm going to give you four examples of this, and then I'm going to ask you to think about what are the, some of the things during Lent that you'd like to lay down so that you can pick up something that empowers you spiritually to live in what Jesus might call the fullness of life. And the first one actually comes from Scripture, 1 John chapter 4 and verse 18, where John says that perfect love casts out fear. So we can lay down fear so that we can pick up love. Now, I am married to an Enneagram 6 who has an enhanced awareness of this in our family's life. Sixes tend to think through all the possibilities of what might happen so that they are fully prepared for what does happen. So it's Susan who does this amazing job of reminding Neely and me that we can't live in fear of the unknown, but each day, take each day at a time and appreciate more fully the joys inside of the day 
And the reason that, that sixes are more aware of this is because they are constantly having to do the work to forestall the fear that they feel. And the reason that, that love is such a great counterbalance to fear is because fear looks for the worst that can possibly happen where love changes our focus to actively seek out the very best for people and the communities that are right in front of me. Where fear paralyzes, love activates and blesses others. Where fear makes me a victim, love grants me agency to make a difference in people's lives. And actively seeking to love others and be a, a transformative blessing also means, and sometimes, it means letting people be people. You know, in, in 30 plus years of ministry, this is the lesson that I'm still learning. You know, one of the trick questions I ask couples when I'm doing premarital counseling um, is if you could change one thing about your fiance, what would it be? And it's always the guy who walks right into that, by the way. <laughs> the twist being, there is absolutely nothing that we can do to change others. We can only be responsible for our own stuff, which is, if true, means that as we deepen our relationship with others, we do better when we lay down a fence and pick up grace and forgiveness. And not because we don't have a right to be offended, but that being offended usually only paralyzes and stresses the one who was offended. Meanwhile, the offender lives blissfully ignorant of the way that they ever committed any wrong. And, and one of the many things I love about grace is that, is that it doesn't need to be right or wrong but rather in order to be in a life-giving relationship with someone I care about, I'm gonna to have to look past some things and pray that, that others receive the grace to look past some shortcomings in me that I tend to sometimes be blissfully unaware of, right? And let me suggest, we actually do this every single day. And most of the time without even knowing it, it's the people we care about most deeply for whom we feel the deepest grief when something in the relationship goes awry. And so moving forward toward healing could mean laying down the offense in our minds and relating instead from a place of grace and forgiveness. We were discussing the, the upcoming election in our staff meeting recently, and the question was, how do we minister to each other and inside of our church in a season that um, really, truly just invites people to line up on different sides of the political spectrum? And, and someone observed that the, um, observed the, the, the weighty, stressful feelings tied to um, both sides of an outcome in, in this upcoming election. And it occurred to me as we were having that conversation that there are places in the world where the church thrives no matter who's in the governing party, no matter who happens to be leading the government at a particular moment in history, there will always be, get this, impactful mission for the people of God to do. And so in these places, the people of God lay down anxiety and stress 
and pick up living with a purpose. In other words, the church keeps the main thing the main thing. And as Clay said last week, Woodmont's four main things, and I've said them before, Christ-centered community, inspiring worship, transforming groups, and impactful mission. And so no matter what's going on politically and socially around us, we are inviting people to know Jesus. We are seeking together the presence and the power of God. We are gathering in groups that nurture life and love, and we are going out creatively into the community with the healing presence of Christ. That's what we're doing no matter what is going on politically or socially around us. Can I get an amen for that, by the way? And in this, we're acting as the church has always been called to act in society as a people who live manifestly in hope. And so we are a people who lay down cynicism and we pick up hope. And hope ties together all the the core spiritual values that we can pick up on our journey through Lent. Love and grace and forgiveness and living purposefully And hope isn't a denial that the world is as broken and fractured as it is. Hope is the power to take the love of God and trust that as we do, the deep love of Jesus will transform people and structures around us. Hope recognizes that there is room for God to move in any situation or circumstance we find ourselves in, and there is no place beyond God's ability to create something new where there are people who are empowered by God to lay themselves down and lean into a sanctified creativity for what a Holy Spirit restored world can look like. And so with the visionary writer of the book of Revelation, um, we confess that God is always doing a new and renewing work. And so in Revelation 21.5, God says at the end of this incredible book where there's disaster and famine and and symbols of apocalyptic destruction, God says, behold, I have made all things new. So this Lent season, we have an opportunity to lay down some things that we are clinging to that stand in the way of our being and feeling and experiencing renewal. And the direction that we're moving as we move toward Easter is freedom from that which keeps us from living life to the full. So I wanna close with a shameless promotional plug. So, So as we've been telling you, we've been talking about how we've reformed the Center for Hope and Healing around the, the spiritually nurturing work, the amazing work of Ben Curtis and Sandy Smith and Beth Patillo and Randy Smith and Vicki Askew and Mary Claire Pyron. And and each of these amazing people, amazing leaders, offer like a different facet of how spiritual growth and healing can take place and and how we can live with greater freedom. So several of them are leading our Linton classes beginning this next Wednesday night. So I'd like to invite you to, to go to our website, under the healing tab, look up the center, and this Lent season could be a time 
of laying down things that you've been letting, needing to let go in your life and picking up an incredible and profound awareness of a God who is right here and powerfully at work, renewing you and restoring you and empowering you to make a difference. Let's pray together. Gracious God, you are so good, and even in our weakness, you come to us in strength. Even in our frailty and short-sightedness, God, you are present to us, always calling us to our better selves. And so our prayer this morning is that you touch our hearts as we enter this this season of Lent and draw us into um, greater freedom to be the person that we were created to be to experience your goodness, to share that goodness, to share life and blessing with others, and to do so with a, with a sense, a powerful sense of the freedom we have when we draw close to the presence of Christ, we pray. In Jesus' name, and everyone said, amen.